0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as we were singing that song together, I just kind of had that thought, man, what a day that will be when we get to eternity shore. And uh, I'm constantly wondering what that day will be like, and I have no idea other than what we just sang, that it will be beautiful, amen? And uh, my heart longs for that day, and uh, so I, I can't wait. And one day, we'll all be there, and uh, man, I can't wait. Uh, so this morning, please bear with me because as you maybe have already noticed, my voice just cracked. Uh, I, I'm struggling this morning. I'm just going to be vulnerable and uh, I, I don't know what else with you, but uh, my voice, um, those of you who have children in daycare, maybe you understand this. It seems like every couple weeks, I just have some kind of head cold. And so uh, please bear with me this morning. Uh, but I'm so humbled and honored to be back with you. If you were here a couple weeks ago, um, I, I got the opportunity to speak and maybe you found out some things about me that you didn't really love. Uh, I did some hot takes if you weren't here. Uh, I do have a, just a quick story that I have to share because it was so funny. On Monday morning, someone on staff came to me and they, they told me, hey, Devin, I've got to tell you a story. You know how you talked about how you didn't really love Chick-fil-A and that you thought it was overrated. Well, it just so happens that the, I, I can't remember if it's the person who's over all of the hospitality of Chick-fil-A in our area or just a certain location, uh, but I just need to like make up some ground with you if you're here today. I do still love Chick-fil-A. I just think it's overrated, and so, please know you're doing great work. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, I'm so honored to be back with you. Our, our lead pastor, Mike, uh, first let me introduce myself. If you're new, my name's Devin. I'm over our student ministry. Our lead pastor, Mike, is out on vacation getting some much-needed rest and relaxation so please please be praying for him pastoral ministry leading all of us is a calling and at times it's super challenging and so i'm so grateful that he can be out of town with his family be praying that his soul would be refilled and refreshed while he's away as he comes back to us so by a show of hands how many of you have siblings okay a good amount uh, how many of you, if you're watching online, you can say, yes, I have siblings, you throw it in the comments. Okay, how many of you are the youngest? Okay, good amount. What about the middle child? Okay. How about the eldest? All right. That's a pretty even, which is crazy. Now, what about only children? Only, any only children? Okay, a few of you. Awesome. Uh, how many of you felt like you were your parents' favorite? Are you willing to admit that? <laughs> Okay, a few hands, yes, yes. So I am the eldest child, uh, so I was the favorite, right? All the middle and younger children's groan and uh, anger, I don't know. I have two younger siblings. My uh, I have a younger sister who's six years younger than me. Her name is Sierra, and I have a younger brother who's 10 years younger than me, and his name is Hunter. We actually all have... Different dads, just because of some brokenness in my family, um, which people usually ask about—not about the brokenness, but about the dad situation—because my brother is six foot seven, and so uh, most people look at my brother and then they look at me and they're like, "What happened?" Well, I, I, we have different dads, and so that explains it. Yes, my little brother is a giant. By the time he was like 14, uh, he could block any shot that I put up if we were playing basketball together, which as an older brother is kind of like a shot to the pride, right? Like, ah, oh, man. But then I would figure out ways to use like my grown brother's strength and, and still beat him the... I don't know if it's the psychological thing of like, oh, he's the older brother. I can't beat him. I don't know. But there were times I would still beat him. So today, we're going to continue to look at Abraham's family line as we look at being a friend of God. And now the story kind of shifts from Abraham into his son and then his son's lineage, the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And so as we jump into this story... It's important to remember the big plot of Scripture that is happening in the overall story. That God has chosen Abraham and his family to enter into a covenant with God. And so let's look back at Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 through 3 to remind us of kind of the biggest picture of Scripture. So Genesis 12, 2 through 3. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will then be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So this is really important to remember. God has entered into a covenant with Abraham, and now Abraham's family is going to be used by God to be this great nation, to be a blessing to others, to bless all the families on earth through God. And if you remember it's not going so great, right? Like if you've been with us over the past month or so, we've been walking through these stories, realizing that God chooses Abraham and his family, certainly not because they're these great moral examples, right? Like in fact, as we've been walking through most of these stories in Genesis, we see that they're about these messy people, people who God has chosen and yet they're messing it up and seemingly putting God's plan in jeopardy. And this is really important to remember because the good news for us even still today is that God is committed to his people. God is committed to his humanity despite our flaws and our failures. And the story of scripture, even all the way back to the patriarchs in Genesis, it is filled with all of their flaws and they all should lead us to Jesus. The one man, the one human God in flesh who does what we could never do ourselves. So keep that in mind as we jump into today's story. Because the main tension of our passage today revolves around sibling rivalry. As we read this, those of you who have a sibling, try and put yourself into this story because I think it will help it come alive. We've all had our sibling rivalries at some point if we have siblings. So. Open up with me to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to walk through Genesis chapter 25 verses 19 through 34, and we're really just going to stay in this one story. And so you can open up to Genesis 25 and stay there from 19 to 34. Verse 19) Chapter 25, it says this. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramian from Paran Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramian. Verse 21. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. So let's stop here for just a second. This should already begin to sound familiar, right? As we've looked at the life of Abraham, the exact same thing was going on with his wife, Sarah. They were barren and it's only one sentence in our story, but it's a really big deal, right? Years and years and years went by. They are waiting for God to provide them a child because this is supposed to be his plan, right? Like they can't exactly be a great nation, this family that's going to be a blessing to all the other nations if their family lineage ends, right? And they wait 20 years for God's blessing to come. I am currently the last male Arredondo in my family. And I remember before my grandpa passed away, he reminded me of this multiple times. When I was in college, when I met my wife, Uh, hey, Devin, the family name ends with you. So no pressure, right? But this is kind of what's going on in this story. So let's keep reading. Genesis 25, verses 22 through 26. So the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebecca became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. So basically what this means in our context is the children were kind of kicking and rolling around a lot, which in that time, biblical times, it was kind of seen as like maybe a really negative thing. Like, are they going to be healthy? Obviously, they don't have like ultrasounds and all that stuff. My wife and I, we just had our first daughter, Eleanor seven months ago. And so we were able to go to like these monthly check-ins to make sure everything was going okay, right? Well, they didn't have that. So she went to ask the Lord, like, what's going on here? Is everything okay? Is it healthy? And so, verse 23. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. They will be two rivals. Now, if you are a sibling in here, think about how maybe that prophecy might uh, affect you if you heard something like that. Like you're going to serve your uh, youngest sibling or vice versa. So they will be rivals. The eldest will serve the youngest. And back then and even now, really, this is very counter-cultural. In this context, normally, the older child has a little bit more responsibility. They carry a little bit more weight of leadership. They're even given a little bit more financial um, stability. And, and this is a pretty big deal to be the eldest child in this society. So verse 24. When the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. Verse 25. The first one was very red at birth. And covered with thick hair like a fur coat. Now, every child is precious in the eyes of the Lord. But this just seems really comical to me. Imagine you have been waiting 20 years and you get a red, super hairy baby. One commentator that I was listening to said this. It's a Wookiee i got to make up for my Star Wars fans who were here the last time I preached. Verse 26, let's keep going. So then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Okay, so rewind just a little bit because this is really important. Whether or not Jacob is physically grasping uh, the heel of Esau, we don't really know for sure. But what the author is trying to get us to see is this is a common phrase in Hebrew for deception. Like, power thirsty in deception. And so the biblical author is already painting this picture for us of the rivalry that is happening, that Jacob would not be content until he found out a way to make himself more important by whatever means necessary. I'm going to come out grabbing the heel of my brother, whatever it takes, even deception, even being a deceiver, which we're going to get into here in a little bit. So the Lord tells Rebecca that the twins will be at odds with each other. The older will serve the younger. Isaac and Rebecca have waited 20 years and God provides with a red haired baby and a deceptive power thirsty baby. Now, why am I explaining this to you? Because it's super important. At this point in our story, we should be tuning in and be thinking, wait just a second. This is the plan. God is going to accomplish this great covenant plan to bless all of the nations through one family through these guys? Like, what? Let's keep reading. Genesis 25, 27. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had, quite a, had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I want to read that one last time. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Notice what Scripture doesn't say here, and I I need to uh, throw a little bit of caution because some of this is assumption, right? Like Scripture doesn't tell us exactly the relationship here, but I think it's really important for those of us who might be parents in the room. It says, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And it's a reminder to us as parents that we have to be especially careful what we are communicating to our children. One of the commentators that I read talked about how Rebecca and Isaac have self-actualized, meaning they've projected their desires, their preferences, their likes onto their children. And now they're playing favorites, right? It's so it's really important for us as parents. We have to be really careful. And now I don't want to shame any parents because oftentimes like this is just a misunderstanding between children, right? Like we say something and they hear it completely differently than what we meant, right? But it's important for us to remember we need to love our children uniquely, but not preferentially, okay? And so notice just a little tidbit there, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter while Jacob was content to stay at home, learning how to cook the food that was caught. Maybe a really good modern story of brothers like this, if you are a Marvel fan like myself, is Thor and Loki. So Thor is like the strong one, right? Like he's got Thor's hammer. He's the man's man favorite of his father, out guarding the city, bringing justice wherever he went, usually through war, right? And then there's Loki who's content to be the trickster at home, enjoyed the finer things, was always scheming, right, to try and steal Thor's throne from him and get the power himself. So maybe that helps you. Maybe it doesn't. If you're not a Marvel fan, you have no idea what I just talked about. If you are, then maybe you're in the story a little bit better. Verse 29. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name Edom, which means red, also because he was red. 31. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Now, hold on just a second here. We need to understand what's truly at stake here. What are the rights of the firstborn son? Well, in this patriarchal society, the eldest son was entitled to a double share of their father's wealth. So to kind of put this uh, maybe in an easier way to understand, say I had four sons. Three of them would all get an equal amount, right? And then I would double the amount given to the three... And then give it to my eldest son, and that would be the birthright. Doesn't sound fair, right? But it seems like a big deal. It's a big deal. And so Jacob is trying to get the birthright from Esau. so the people listening to this story in Scripture, they would have been like, wait, what? Jacob, you sly fox. Like, I get it. You're trying to take advantage of a hungry brother. But the birthright? Like, good try, but Esau's never going to fall for that. Good try, Jacob, but there's no way, right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 32. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? How many of you have ever struggled with something that we struggle with in my home? We like to refer to it as hangar. Hangar is real, y'all. And this is what is happening right now. Esau is so hangry that he can't see past a bowl of soup. He's so hangry. He's like, "Nah, I don't want my birthright. I don't need my birthright right now. It's not going to help me because I'm so hungry, right? Like, I'm starving. I'm going to die. And maybe he was. We don't know. But I kind of tend to view it as, you know, it's that like, oh, I'm so hungry. I could eat a horse, Like. Esau is exaggerating in this moment, but Jacob sees his opportunity yet again. Verse 33. So Jacob said, but first you must swear that your birthright is mine. Swear there is like a legally binding contract. So this isn't just like a conversation between two brothers. We need to understand it's way more in depth than that. Jacob at this point is basically, he's like written up the contract. He's like, I need you to sign on the dotted line. So he's like, swear to me. That the birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath. He signed on the dotted line. Therefore selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. And Esau ate the meal, got up, and then left. He showed contempt. For his rights as the firstborn. And here we have it. In a shocking development. What does Esau do? He swears to Jacob his birthright. I'm sorry, what? You just gave up everything that you were entitled to. All the financial gain. All the leadership responsibility that God wanted to use you for. All of this stuff for a bowl of soup. I'm talking one bowl. Not like an endless bowl from Olive Garden just one. And at first it's really easy to read through the story and think, Esau, what in the world are you doing? What in the heck? How could you give up so much for something so small? But then I look at my life, right? And I realize how often I'm willing to sacrifice the eternal purpose that God has called me to. The eternal purpose that God has planned for me for some fleeting momentary satisfaction. Instant gratification. I think we can all relate to this, right? It's so easy to be critical of Esau. I think we all wrestle with this. At least I do, right? Like, I love instant gratification, You mow the lawn and you can instantly see the work that you've accomplished. You watch 18 episodes of whatever show that you're hooked on and you immediately feel entertained. You touch that black mirror, your device screen, and two days later, whatever you want shows up at your door. Come on, primers, you know what I'm talking about. Or even better, if you're in this area and you're on that Walmart Plus life, it'll show up on the same day. We love instant gratification, Right? You know what I'm talking about. We long for it. But oftentimes, I think our longing for this instant gratification can derail an entire process, the entire plan that God eventually has for us. If you fast forward the story of Esau, Esau is eventually removed from God's plan And we see his character come out in one little sentence at the close of our passage today. It says, Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Now... It's important to understand this loaded phrase. Because first, what the author's trying to get us to identify is that this was just an ordinary day for Esau. Selling his birthright was no more than just eating a bowl of soup. He ate the meal, got up, and left. And then this next sentence, he showed contempt. For his rights as the firstborn. This word contempt is the same word that we saw back in the very beginning of the covenant between God and Abraham where God tells Abraham, I will curse those who show contempt for your family. That's exactly what Esau does. He says, all the family that I have, the, the covenantal promise that God has given my father and his father and my family, it means nothing to me because right now I'm just hungry. Just an ordinary day for Esau. No big deal at all to sell the birthright because in his mind did not bring him any value in the immediacy. He couldn't see the long-term benefits of his birthright and ultimately God's covenant plan for his family. And at his own detriment, he showed contempt for those things. And as I read through the story, I couldn't help but think about my choices How often I choose, how easy it is to think that one unwise decision, it doesn't really hurt me that much, right? It's just one little choice. But how often have I missed out on what God might have planned in my life because of one small choice? And so I want us to remember this, that small choices can have drastic consequences. Small choices can have drastic consequences, but... Wise choices daily, when given time, will lead us to the gratification that we truly seek. Wise choices daily, when given time will lead us to the gratification that we truly seek. And this is a really practical application to every area of our lives, right? Like we all know that good things take time, but I want us to focus on and remember that this applies to our spiritual lives more than anything else. It is essential, Don't be disheartened when it feels like you're not growing. Don't be discouraged when it feels like you're stuck in the same spiritual rut. Do not let the enemy convince you that instant gratification is more appealing because he will try over and over and over again. But do not give up the permanent God's plan for the immediate. Because just like Esau, we need to remind ourselves it's simply one bowl of soup. It's one bowl. So that's one main aspect of this story. We look at Esau and we can be reminded, don't settle for these small things when God has a much greater plan. But oftentimes... It feels like we stop here. If you've, ever heard, if you've ever heard this story taught before, I know I have in my life, and it seems like it's kind of this, hey, don't be like Esau. Don't show contempt for God's plan in your life, which is really important, but the story, that's not where it ends. It's not the main point of the story. So another lesson from this story is this. It's easy to grab the right things for the wrong reasons, It's easy to grab the right things for the wrong reasons. Growing up, I remember reading through this story and being like, wait, this just seems off, right? Like, it's okay to lie and deceive and to trick your brother as long as it's kind of part of God's plan? Like, what is going on here? Jacob takes advantage of a hungry sibling, and honestly, it's pretty shady, right? Jacob was right to want the birthright, right? But he was wrong to want the birthright for the personal advantages it would bring him. He was wrong to take it the way that he did instead of patiently waiting for God to work out his promises. Jacob took things into his own hands. And I think we can all relate to that as well. See the narrator is using the tensions between these two brothers to illustrate the character flaws in all of the family. Esau and Jacob are broken people, Isaac and Rebekah. They are no more righteous than anyone else. They are all flawed. It's not a story of good guys versus the bad guys. No, it is a story of this bad humanity completely being changed and redirected by a good God. Just like all of Scripture it's a story about God creating His good and fulfilling His plan. Even when it seems like there is no way. The reader or the hearers of this story, they would have looked at both of these characters and been like, where is God's plan going to come to fulfillment? There's no way it's through these people. But yet God says in the midst of masquerades, in the midst of jealousy, hostility, in the midst of sibling conflict, God is still able to preserve his covenant and bring about his blessing despite The weakness of those he has chosen. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what gives us hope. This is what we will always come back to. That God can take our mess ups. God can take the times we've sacrificed. Eternal for the temporary. God can take our mistakes. And create his good will. Out of them. No matter what. No matter what, that's the kind of God who he is. See, God works both despite and through our weaknesses. You fast forward scripture and through this family, one person would come and do what no other could do, fulfill God's plan. As we read this story, you see our eyes should immediately be pointing to Jesus. All of this is a foreshadowing that these people, God's chosen nation were broken and flawed and they would need fixing and correcting just like all of us. And at one point in time, God came to this earth to fix the brokenness, who, to send us one person who would do it all for us so that his promise could extend to all people. No longer just Abraham and his family but to everyone because of what Jesus did on the cross when Jesus came and defeated death and rose again. And so in our story today, we have to ask ourselves two questions. What am I living for? What am I living for? If you're living for good feelings in the short run, if you're living for the temporary satisfaction, I'm telling y'all, You're missing out on God's purposes for your life. It may not look like it right now. It may not look like it in the immediate, but you're selling the promise that God has for you for a measly bowl of soup. It's not worth it. As I read through the rest of Esau's life, I I can't help. But imagine the regret Esau must have had to live with. Knowing what he missed out on. But the beauty is we do not have to miss out. We don't have to live with that same regret. Because we can always run to Jesus. And when we meet Jesus face to face. The shame, the regret. All of the choices we've made just wash away. In the love of Christ. So what are you living for? And then for maybe another group here today. Maybe like Jacob, are you after the right things for the wrong reasons? Maybe a better way to look at it, a common phrase in the church world is something like this. Do you want the blessing more than the blesser. And here's what I mean by this. Don't misunderstand. Following God's word, choosing to follow after Jesus' plan for our life has wonderful, wonderful benefits. God can give us peace and joy. God can put broken things back together. God can restore all kinds of hurt. He can give you wisdom for raising your children. Really, there's no end to how God's redemption and His word can be a positive influence and impact on your life when you apply it. But guess what? It was never meant to stop with me. It's never meant to stop with us. You see, just like Abraham and the promise of God's covenant, God blesses so that the blessing continues. You see, he wants to use us to fulfill his purpose, to bless all of the nations through his people, which is, if you are following Jesus, is you. Through Jesus, we are now all adopted into the line of Abraham, and now we've all been given an invitation to join God in his continual mission to bless the nations through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, what are you living for? Are you living for the right things, but for the wrong reasons? Is the blessing stopping with you? Are you willing to partner with God and do whatever it takes to say, man, I want people to know who Jesus is? As we close, look at me, or look with me. Don't look at me. (laughs) As we close, look with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 16 And right before this, Paul, the author of Romans, is kind of writing through all of the history of Abraham and Esau and making a theological point. But I just want to focus on verse 16. He closes all of this by saying, It does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And as I read through that, isn't that the gospel? It doesn't depend on your will. It doesn't depend on your ability to follow God's plan. It doesn't depend on the things, the righteous things that you think you've done. It doesn't depend on all of the wrong things that you think you've done that have kept you from God. No, it depends only on God's mercy, only on God's mercy. And so both of us, no matter which question you need to wrestle with today, are in the same place because it is all God's mercy at work in our lives. It's not our human effort. It's not our human will. It's what Jesus came to do for us. So as we close today, as we sing our last song, whatever you're wrestling with today, would you stop, spend some time and thank God for his mercy for us. And if you've never received that mercy before, it's super simple. It's just a matter of saying, hey, hey Lord, I'm kind of like Esau. I've messed up some things in my life. And I need you to come fix them. Show me your mercy. I want to receive that today. Is that easy? If that's you, I would love for you to pray that and invite the Lord to come and fix things. And then, if you've already chosen to follow Jesus, It's reminding ourselves we're no better than anyone else. But we want to be filled with the mercy of God so that we can share with all of those around us how good and faithful our Lord is. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're grateful that it's not anything that we do. It's all you. God, as we look at the lives of Jacob and Esau, in the middle of their mess, in the middle of the rivalry, in the middle of tough parenting, in the middle of all of it, God, you're there, slowly painting a picture of your redemption, not by anything that Jacob would do, not by anything Esau would do, not by anything Isaac or... Rebecca or Sarah or Abraham would do, but all because of your faithfulness. God, we give you so much praise for that, Lord. We're gonna mess things up, but would you remind us when we do of your mercy and may we run quickly back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.